0: Well, let's get, to, um, let's get to Judges chapter 4 tonight. This is our fourth lesson. We're not necessarily going to have uh, a lesson in each chapter, but this is just how it worked out tonight. We're in chapter 4. There was a little boy who carried his lunch to school every day. Every day he would complain about what he had to eat. He had a peanut butter sandwich every day that he came to school. And every day, he's like, man, it's another peanut butter sandwich. And he just kept complaining and complaining. Finally, his friends got tired of it. And he, and they said, look, why don't you just tell your mom to fix something different for you? And he said, who said anything about my mom? I fix my own lunch every day when I come to school. That's exactly what's going on in the book of Judges. The nation of Israel is fixing their lunch Every time you read about them and then they complain about what they end up with. That's the story repeated again and again throughout this book. You've already seen it. We're only through three chapters. But time after time, they'll sin against God. God lets them reap the consequences. God moves a nation to put them into bondage. Israel eventually gets tired of it. Sometimes it takes longer than others. You'll read where they're under this nation for 20 years or this nation for 40 years. But eventually Israel gets tired of it and they cry out to God and God who is faithful all the time delivers them through the work of a judge and then they have rest for a period of years. It might be 20 years, it might be 40 years, it might be 80 years. But eventually they're going to make themselves another peanut butter sandwich and they're going to end right back up in bondage like they were before. And that cycle just keeps being repeated Sin always does that. I put a quote on your worksheet tonight from Pastor Randy Ray, who back in the uh, uh, 1980s preached a message over here in Knoxville that I heard of called Three Characteristics of Sin. And the points of that message have been repeated all over the place, and songs have been written about it, but it is so true when it comes to sin. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will always cost you more than you want to pay. That's just how sin works. I don't care what sin promises us. This is how sin works. The the, the devil, who's the originator of sin, this is his goal. His goal is your destruction. His goal was Israel's destruction. And, And Israel fell for it time and time again. So we come to chapter 4 tonight. Chapter 4 is a pretty dramatic chapter. In fact, Judges 4 reads like a dramatic play. But it is true history. You are reading something tonight that actually happened. But if we were to take this like a dramatic play, I I would start tonight by introducing you to the cast of characters that you're going to read. The names in this chapter... ...are not our normal names. I, I like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, don't you? Well, we don't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul, and Peter. We have men like Jabin, and Sisera, and Barak, and uh, a woman named J.L. and we've got all these different names. But that's our cast of characters. We're going to first meet this king, Jabin. Jabin is a wicked king of a country called Hazor, and he's a tyrant. He has as the captain of his army, the captain of his host, a man by the name of Sisera. Sisera is bad guy number two in our drama. Then we also meet a woman by the name of Deborah. Deborah is a Jewish judge, and she is full of faith, and she is full of courage, and she has tremendous leadership skills. Then we meet a man named Barak. Barak is a Jewish general who was reluctant to serve. We'll see that also. Then there's a man named Heber, and Heber is a Kenite, uh, the Kenite's are distant relatives of Moses by way of marriage. And he, even as a Jewish person, is at peace with that wicked king, Jabin. And then there's Heber's wife, Jael. Of anything else she could do, she knew how to swing a hammer. Don't get on this lady's bad side. That's what I would say. And then finally, Jehovah God. Jehovah, God demonstrates in this chapter his absolute power over anything. And in this, particular, in this particular chapter, he demonstrates his power over war and over the weather. But that's the cast. This is how this, this, is how this uh, dramatic story is going to unfold. Let's introduce it by, by reading a first, the, the first couple of verses here. Judges chapter 4, verse 1 says, And the children of Israel again... Did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud, the last judge, when he was dead. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor. The captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Herosheth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron. Talking about King Jabin. And 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. Oftentimes in this book, you'll read about these kings or these nations that oppressed the children of Israel. This man, the Bible's careful here, to say he mightily oppressed them. This was like the Egyptians uh, overseeing uh, the Israelites back in Exodus where they told them to make make the brick without straw. Remember that? They made it hard on them. That's what's being said in verse number three. This man, Jabin, really, uh, really oppressed them, mightily oppressed them. So let's make our way through this chapter tonight, a good chapter, a dramatic chapter. And I'm not overusing that word. It's just amazing what happens here. And really, to get the whole picture of what happens in chapter 4, you have to acquaint yourself with Deborah's song in chapter number 5 because we get details in chapter 5 where she's praising the Lord for what he did in chapter 4. We get details in chapter 5 that we we didn't get in chapter number 4. We get a summary statement here, but over here in chapter five we get the details of what happened. So let's look at this tonight like this. Let's look at it as as a drama in four acts. Okay, act number one is a tragic situation. A tragic situation. We just read about it. The Jews had rest for eighty years. It says in uh, in chapter three and verse thirty after. Uh, Ehud led Israel to rebel against the Moabites. They defeated the Moabites. The Bible says in chapter 3, verse 30, and the land had rest fourscore years. So they were delivered, self-governing now for 80 years. It's the longest period of time in the book of Judges that Israel has rest. There's There's an important observation to make, especially here toward the beginning of the book. And that observation is this: Israel never experienced revival in this book. They only experienced reformation. That's an important. That's an important thing. Reformation's on the outside, revivals in the heart. Their heart never turned in the book of Judges. Now, once we get into the Kings, you'll have godly kings like uh, Hezekiah and Asa that come in, and you'll find you will find revival occurring under there. I mean, they go in and clean house. Remember that? They're tearing down idols, and people. they're cleaning out the temple, and it's great. You don't find that in the book of Judges. What you have is temporary reformation. Not one time do they experience revival, and this is one of those times when they're sinning against God. So verse number 2 says this, that God raised an enemy up against them. And I think as Christians today in, in 2023, we ought not to forget this, that God will raise up an en- enemy against you or me when we rebel against him. God God doesn't change necessarily the way he works. It says in verse number two, the Lord sold them into the hand of this tyrant named Jabin. Let that be a warning to me and let that be a warning to you that God raised up this enemy against his people. So we come to this man named Jabin. He reigned in Hazor, so uh, Hazor is one of these city-states in the land of Canaan. But it also says that he was king of Canaan. Most Bible historians believe that there was a confederacy of kings that lived all, all throughout the land. Remember all those tribes that Israel failed to kick out when they were going through the land? The Bible said they just left them here and left them there. They would eventually form a confederacy, and they had a king over them. That king, at this particular time in history, his name was Jabin. He's a powerful man. Not only does he rule his little area, but then he's the king over this confederacy of of different kings. So he's got some power to him. Certainly he has a huge army. It must have been a massive army because just the cavalry side of it, forget the infantry, the cavalry side of it had nine 100 chariots of iron. That's like a bunch of M1A tanks for the United States. Back in that day, that was was imposing. And in fact, that's what's mentioned. That's what's mentioned as a source of their oppression. It's it's these chariots. How do you overcome a chariot of iron when you're an unarmed, unformed army? What are you going to do? Well, they mightily oppressed Israel. In verse number 3, you have them crying out. Those of you who are parents or grandparents who have to deal with your young grandchildren, do you ever, do you ever uh, get the sense that your kids are not sorry for what they did wrong? They're sorry for the consequences of their wrongdoing. That's Israel. Israel here is not sorry for their sin. They're sorry for their suffering. Not for the cause of their suffering. They're sorry they're suffering. It says in verse number 3, the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he mightily oppressed them. They were not crying out because they were sorry for their sins. They just didn't like the peanut butter sandwich that they had made. And so they're crying out to God. And I drew this parallel. I think I left part of this on your worksheet that the same thing's true today. Many want God to improve their circumstances, but they don't want God to call them out for the way they're living their life. What they want is God's deliverance, but not what they would call his interference in their lives. God, I just want you to make my life better, but I still want to choose how I live my life. I want to say if I'm going to do this or going to do that. I want to say if I'm going to go here or not going to go there. But I really would like you to make me have a good life. Well, God doesn't work like that. You know that, and I know that. The Bible teaches God blesses obedience. He will chasten in his children disobedience. But that's what the children of Israel wanted. They wanted his deliverance, not his interference. And there are a lot of folks like that today. You know what God wants? God wants someone to pray what David did in Psalm 51. Create in me a a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. He's not looking for someone to change the outside. God wants to do a work of revival. Not reformation. Not turning over a new leaf. not, Not getting back in church. God wants to do a work from the inside out. Israel was never interested in that in the book of Judges. They wanted God to improve their circumstances, but they also wanted God to leave them alone should they choose to worship Baal, should they choose to intermarry with the Canaanites, the pagans. They did not want God calling the shots. God, all along, wanted to create in them a clean heart. He wanted to renew a right spirit in them. Same with, same with us today. So Judges chapter 4, we open up with those three verses. Israel is again... Surprise, surprise, they're in a spiritual mess and they're crying out to God for it. They want him to fix what they broke. So act one is a tragic situation, familiar situation for Israel, but tragic. Act number two, a divine revelation, a divine revelation. Look at verse four and Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, She judged Israel at that time, and she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kedesh Naphtali, and said unto him, "Hath Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor? And take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun. And I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude. And I will deliver him into thine hand. Boy, that's quite a promise. A divine revelation. Right away, we notice that this judge, for the first time in this book, this judge is a woman. It's a female. That hasn't happened in here. It's not going to happen after this either. So something's going on, something's going on in Israel that's unique at this particular period of their history. What is it? Note this God raised up Deborah, which was an act of grace in that it helped Israel. She's going to get him out of a mess. But it was also an act of humiliation because Israel was a male-led society. What, What this is saying is there wasn't a man available to judge Israel at this time. That's what I believe is going on. Did you know that that's part of God's judgment on the nation of Israel in the Old Testament? Would you hold your finger here or put your little Bible ribbon like I do in Judges chapter 4? Would you turn over to Isaiah chapter 12? or I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 3. Third chapter of Isaiah. We're going to read some verses here that describe what God's judgment looks like on his people if they forsook his ways. And what you're going to see is part of that judgment was an absence of qualified godly men to serve as leaders in Judah's society and government. But this worked out in Judah or Israel. Now, where we're at in the book of Judges, Israel is still a unified country. There's just one. Later on... Uh, you know, uh, after David dies and Solomon dies, the country is ripped in two, and now you have two nations. Isaiah chapter 12 is addressing the nation of Judah, the southern nation. But the same thing applies. Look what it says in chapter 3 and verse 1. Isaiah 3, 1. For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water the mighty man and man of war, the judge and the prophet and the prudent and the ancient, the captain of 50 and the honorable man and the counselor and the cunning artificer and the eloquent orator, and I will give children to be their princes and babes shall rule over them. And the people, shall be every, uh, the people shall be oppressed, every one by another and every one by his neighbor. The child shall behave himself pr- proudly against the ancient and the base against the honorable. Would you, I don't know if you're reading the King James translation or not, but whatever your translation is, would you see the United States of America and our society in this today? It shouldn't take you long to draw these parallels. Verse number 6, when a man shall take hold of his brother of the house of his father, saying, Thou hast clothing, be thou our ruler, and let this ruin be under thy hand. In that day shall he swear, saying, I will not be an healer. For in my house is neither bread nor clothing. Make me not a ruler of the people. For Jerusalem is ruined, and Judah is fallen, because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. The show of their countenance doth witness against them, and they declare their sin is Sodom. They hide it not. Man, twenty twenty-three. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. Say you to the righteous that it shall be well with him, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, they which lead thee cause, uh, they which lead thee, cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. For time's sake, we'll stop reading right there, but do you get the gist of this? God has taken away, it says, God has taken away in those first few verses the mighty man, the honorable man, the, the talented man, the craftsman, the leaders. This just describes our society today. That's what I believe was going on back in the book of Judges. You see, when everybody knows the very last verse of the book of Judges, you'll recognize it even though you may not have known it was the last verse of the book of Judges when it concludes What? That every man did that which was right in his own eyes. They didn't come to that overnight. That was going on all the way through the book of Judges. I believe when we were in Judges chapter 4, I think part of the problem, uh, part of the reason rather that Deborah was where she was as a prophetess and a judge is because Isaiah chapter 3 was being demonstrated in God's people. They had forsaken him. Deborah was a prophetess and a judge. Those two things mean this, that she was given supernatural wisdom and discernment from God's spirit. And there are other other women in the Bible who have this. Moses' sister Miriam, she had that gift. Anna. Uh, Dr. Manley just read about her in Sunday school this last week, the, that wise woman Anna in the Gospels who was waiting for the uh, she was waiting to see Messiah. Remember that? She had that discernment. Philip, the evangelist in Acts chapter number nine, he had four daughters that had that same they had that same anointing. Deborah, in chapter five and verse seven, called herself the Mother in Israel. Sinful Israel was like her children, and she was. it was as if she was trying to call them back to God as a mom calls a wayward son or daughter. This was the position that she was in. And so God chose at this particular time, God chose to use this godly, spiritually minded, spiritually led, discerning woman named Deborah to lead her people. So much lead her people that she sat under a tree and children of Israel would come to her and say, hey, We need this judgment to be made, and when God was ready to deliver him, God God implied or God led Deborah to call for Barak and said, "You are to lead the army of Israel to to draw Sisera's troops to Mount Tabor." And what he was doing was drawing them to a trap. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, Mount Tabor is a little bit southwest of the Sea of Galilee, so it's it's north of Jerusalem. It's west of Galilee, but it's east of Nazareth. So if you're familiar with Bible geography or if you have Bible maps in the back of your your Bible, you can can find Mount Tabor um, just a little bit north of the center of the nation and west of the Sea of Galilee. And God was going to bring them. God had a plan. He was going to bring them to Mount Tabor, and this army was going to be wiped out by a group of people, by the way, who were not part of a standing army because they were under under oppression for 20 years. Here's, Here's my point on this, about drawing Sisera into this trap. When God wants to glorify himself through us, he always has a perfect plan to do so. When he wants to work through you, when he wants to work through me, when he wants to work through Barak or Deborah or the children of Israel, he has this plan to do that. We just need to follow his plan. What happens is when I come up with my own plan, here's God's plan. You know where it's going to end. It's always going to end successfully or victoriously. And then here's Mark's plan. Mark's plan is almost all the time going to fail if it opposes God's plan. Now, if Mark's plan is to go along with whatever God says, Mark's Mark's chosen chosen a wise course. But when you and I set a course opposite, perpendicular to the plan of God, it's always going to result in tragedy for us. And that's what Israel did. God does want to be glorified up in your life. He wants to be lifted up in your life. And he has a plan to do that. And his plan guarantees success. It guarantees his blessing. But I have to follow that plan. And you have to follow that plan. Do you remember what it says in, in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven? The modern translations have it like this. For I know the plans that I have for you. But the King James Bible says this. I know the thoughts that I think toward you. That makes it a... Can I just tell you something? To me, maybe I'm reading it wrong. That makes it a little more personal to me. To know that I'm in God's thoughts. For I know... The thoughts that I think toward you, as an individual, not the human race, not not America, not the body at Faith Baptist Church, that I think toward you, individual child of God. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, to bring you to an expected end. God has a plan. He revealed that plan to Deborah. She told Barak. They followed it. And we're going to see in a moment. They're going, to have, they're going to have some victory here. But the point of this is you and I, if we'll just cooperate with God's plan, what is it that he's given us to do? Cooperate with that. So God chose this leader. He chose the place for the battle. It's Mount Tabor. He chose the strategy for the attack. Victory is guaranteed. So you have this tragic situation. Israel's in a mess again. You have this divine revelation. Act 3, you have a reluctant participation. Reluctant participation. So Deborah has called Barak. She's laid it out for him. And in verse number 8, Barak says back to Deborah. If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. There's a hesitancy there. Do you see that? You see his his reluctance. Now mark this. The Bible never says that Barak is a judge in Israel. If anything, it lays him out to be a military leader. He's not called a captain or anything. This is just a man God put on Deborah's heart to call and send him into battle. So maybe he was already military-minded. Maybe he was an older guy who fought 20 years ago. Uh, against, you know, enemies or something like that. But the Bible never calls him a judge. And he's called to to take this action. And he says, well, wait a minute. Have you ever done that to God? When, when God calls you to do something, it's clear what he's given you to do. And you're like, well, what I, what I want you to do, Gideon, is do this. And then Gideon kind of pushes that fleece out there. Remember his fleece? Lord, if it's wet up here and dry down here, I'll go. And then it is. And then he comes back and he says, well, it needs to be dry up here and wet down here, and I'll go. Well, this is what what Barak is doing here. He's appointed to be the leader of Israel's army. He's told to activate his troops. He's from the tribe of Naphtali, which is going to, to send thousands of volunteers. But just like Moses... Just like Gideon, (coughs) just like Jeremiah, by the way, there's a reluctance in him, a hesitance. Well, I'll go if you'll go, Deborah, but if you're not going, I am not going. I am not going on this. Someone, and I don't know who, said this. God's commandment is his enablement. God's commandment is his enablement. That just means if he's called you to do something... He's going to give you the ability to do it. Do you remember Paul's Paul's statement in in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Paul says, says, I want you to take the thorn out. God says, I'm not going to do it. My my strength will be made perfect in your weakness. It's not about my ability. It's not about Barak's ability. It's not about his military strategy or his his prowess as a general. It's It's not about any of that. You just follow the plan that God has, and God will enable you to accomplish it. But Barack said, Deborah, if you don't go, I'm not going up either. Was it cowardice that kept him from just wholeheartedly jumping in? Was he afraid? Was it his need for uh, help in recruiting soldiers? Did he think, Deborah's the leader here. If she'll go with me, these people will jump in on this army. But if it's just me by myself, they're not going to come. I don't know what the hesitancy was, but whatever whatever his reason for being hesitant, she agreed to go, doesn't she? Look at verse number 9. And she said, I will surely go with thee. So maybe her presence was part of God's plan all along, but it wasn't Barak's place to hesitate to follow God's plan. And it cost him. His hesitancy, his reluctance to say, yes, I'll I'll do it. His reluctance cost him. Continue reading in verse number 9. Here's the cost. Notwithstanding, the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor. For the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. You're going to lead this army. You're going to take them, uh, you're going to take them uh, into battle. But the greatest victory that's going to come in this battle is going to be won by a woman, not you, General Barack. You had a shot, but you hesitated. You held back, full surrender. I'll go, but you have to go too, Deborah. Okay, I'll go, but the key battle is going to be won by a woman. I left. On, I know I left this on your worksheet. Asking what you think you want may bring with it what you do not want. What he wanted was Deborah by his side. That was going to be his crutch. He got it, but there was a cost to it. Somebody watching a dog chase a car. You ever watch a dog chase a car? We got one that's inside a fence on our way home. If we go up Greenbrier... There's a dog, and he loves. To, he's in that fence, but when we come around that corner, we, you know, we're slowing down going around this corner. When we start take off, boy, he gets next to that fence, and he just runs. Sometimes I think he's going to run right through that chain link fence at the other end. He's just running so hard. But these two guys are watching this one dog chase a car, and he's chasing it for all he's worth. And one guy asks the other one, "What do you think he's going to do when he catches that car? You know, what are they going to do when they catch it?" Barack caught it, and he didn't know what to do. With it then it cost him. He pursued something he thought he wanted, but then he, it didn't. He, he gets this army up together, 40,000 of them, the Bible tells us. But there were some tribes that chose not to participate in this. Beyond, beyond Barak's reluctance, there were tribes that says, we're not going to this fight. In fact, chapter 5 tells us who they are. They're the tribes of Reuben, Dan, Asher, and Manasseh. In chapter 5, Manasseh is called Gilead but it's the, same, it, it, it's the same tribe. Four of them said, we're not sending anybody. Reuben was the, Reuben, Reuben was the big tribe. That was the firstborn of, uh, of Jacob. He should have been out there front leading. They said, we're not sending anybody. Reuben, Dan, Asher, Manasseh, none of them chose to go. Here's the problem when we choose not to participate in the plan of God. Here's what that costs us. When we choose not to participate in what God is doing... We miss out not only on the rewards, but on the faith-building opportunity of seeing God do something miraculous. You ever been a part of something miraculous in the work of God? I want you to think for a moment about the 12 disciples that helped Jesus pass out five loaves and two small fishes. Two small fishes to probably, I don't know, ten or 15,000 people. How many in that crowd do you think knew that they started with five loaves and two small fishes? I don't think there were very many, but I know there were 12. There were 12 that when Jesus started breaking that bread, that little boy's small, tiny lunch, that, and, and when you think of loaves, remember, we're not talking two-pound loaves of Wonder Bread. They called a loaf what you and I would call a roll. Five dinner rolls and two small fishes. There were at least 12 of them who knew what they started with. And because they participated in the work that Jesus was doing, they saw a miracle take place. And when we choose not to participate in what God's doing, it's not only the rewards we lose out on, but we lose out on the opportunity to have our faith built because we see God do something only he can do. Here's a bunch of farmers and and people living in oppression that are going to take on arguably one of the strongest armies in that region at that time under King Jabin. But Reuben and Dan and Asher and Manasseh said, now nah, we eh, we got a lot going on. we we just got a lot going on with, with this or with that, with family or work. We're, we're not going to be able to send any troops. We're too committed. Okay. So these 40,000 show up, these volunteers show up, and they get to see what God's going to do. Sometimes we're given a task to do for God, and we may wonder how we're going to get that task done because we don't think we have what we need. But the truth is that all God is seeking from you or from me is willing participation, a surrendered heart. He'll take care of the rest of that. God just needs some hands and feet. He he doesn't need your wit. He doesn't need your intelligence. He doesn't need mine. He wouldn't have much to work with anyway. What he needs is for me to say, here am I. Send me. I'll go. I'll do that. I'll stand here. I'll move that brick. I'll do that. That's all God's looking for. Willing participation and a surrendered heart. I want you to keep in mind these 40,000 that surrendered. Chapter 5 and verse 8 says there was no weapons among the Israeli people. They didn't have any weapons. That. That's what it says, chapter 5 and verse 8. They chose new gods, then was war in the gates. Israel chose new gods, and then war came to them. And here's the question. Was there a shield or a spear seen among the 40,000 in Israel? It's a rhetorical question. God's saying they don't have any weapons. We're sending 40,000 soldiers out there. They don't have any weapons. That means God was going to have to show up and do something for them. And that's exactly what happened. Act number four, verses 11 through 23, a victorious confrontation. Now God steps, God steps up. He's center stage in this drama, and he not only brings the villains to this place, but he sends a storm to battle Sisera's troops. This is an interesting passage of scripture. There's three things in these verses, and then we'll be done. First of all, Sisera is warned. Remember, Sisera, he's the captain of the enemy host. Jabin is the wicked king. Sisera, bad guy number two, he's the captain of the host. It says in verse number 11, Now Heber the Kenite, which was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had severed himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent unto the plain of Zaanaim, which is by Kedesh. And they showed Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, was gone up to Mount Tabor. Verses 11 and 12, Heber warns Sisera that the Israelites are going to revolt. He says, Barak has brought 40,000 over to Mount Tabor, and they're here for a fight. I just want you to know, he, he warns them. I think Heber worshipped the true God, but I think he didn't have a dog in this fight, and so he... He really had just made peace with Jabin, but he does go to him and he says, "He, he says um, that that Barak has brought these soldiers over there. So it's not that he was a traitor to Israel or to the other. He's just not in this fight. Heber, not. Well, Pastor, why are you bringing him up if he's he's going to play a he's going to play an important role here? But Heber goes to him and he warns Sisera." And Sisera believed Heber's report, and he falls right. <coughs> excuse me, he falls right into God's trap. We'll see this in just a minute. But God is not going to be over. God is not going to be overthrown by somebody as weak as Jabin or Sisera. In fact, these men that plot and plan against the ways of God, this this, this uh, family that's coming into Mark and Michelle's church and and trying to attack this church through witchcraft. You think God's going to stand idly by on this? This is what God says in Proverbs chapter 1. God is speaking. He says, but ye have said at not all my counsel and with none of my reproof. You wouldn't listen to one thing I said. I will also laugh at your calamity and will mock when your fear cometh. That is an ominous warning. It's not a threat. It's just a warning from God. He's not going to, he's not going to be moved by this. So you, you have, first of all, Sisera being warned. That's verses 11 through 12. Then you have Sisera being whipped. I'm, I'm just trying to stick with my little alliteration, but being whipped in a fight, that's a good southern term, isn't it? Look at verse number 13. And Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron, and all the people that were with him from Herosheth of the Gentiles unto the river of Kishon. And Deborah said unto Barak, up For this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor and 10,000 men after him. Look at verse number 15. It's a summary verse of the whole battle. And the Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his host with the edge of the sword before Barak so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. 900 chariots, horse-drawn chariots of iron. These were heavy armor that they had brought to this fight. Sisera brought 900 chariots to battle. What he didn't know was God was going to bring a devastating rainfall and a subsequent flood that caused the Kishon River that keeps being mentioned here. Why do you think the Holy Spirit, I think five times in this chapter, he keeps talking about the Kishon River? I've never heard of the Kishon River before. Not until I got to Judges chapter 4. But you'd think this was the Tigris or the Euphrates, the way it's being mentioned here. A rain comes and the Kishon River overflows and everything is turned to a mud pit. What do you think that did to the effectiveness of an iron chariot. At that leveled the playground or the battlefield pretty quickly, didn't it? How do I know that there's this rainfall and this flood? I said a moment ago, you got to read Deborah's song in chapter number 5, and she tells us about this. Chapter 5 verses 20 and 21 give you the detail of why Sisera fled his iron chariot in the middle of a fight. Why jump out of the tank in the middle of a fight? Look at chapter 5, verse number 20. Deborah is singing a praise to God. They fought from heaven. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera. The river of Kishon swept them away. That ancient river, the river Kishon. O oh my soul, thou hast trodden down strength. They came with the strength of those iron chariots, and God made them of no effect. So Sisera, that was the best thing he could do. You, you, you've seen those those movies from World War II where they show those tanks, those early tanks just bog down the mud. They're not going anywhere. They're just sitting ducks for another tank. Well, Sisera is a sitting duck in there. So he flees his chariot. Not only did the storm come and cause problems and this flood comes and cause problems, but the Bible says that. That God discomfited them in verse number 15. That means to confuse or to throw them in a panic. Why were they confused? They were confused because the God that they worshipped, Baal, was the God of war. But he's also the God of the storm. Why in the world would their God send a storm at the most inopportune time unless Israel had a stronger God? That's exactly what happened here? The, their god of storm, their god of war, was absolutely overwhelmed by the true god. Sisera must have wondered why his god sent this rain right then. And those thoughts only added to the confusion that now his iron chariots were doing nothing. His whole strategy was built around those chariots. And now they're gone. They're, they're just they're bogged down there in the mud. They're sinking. What's he going to do? All of this confusion. So the battle's lost. The battle's absolutely lost. And before I move on, Cicero being warned and then he's whipped. Before I move on, let me point this out to you. We should be reminded as believers just how far God will go to work on your behalf and my behalf. God manipulated weather patterns to cause his people to have victory. God will go a long way for you. When Joshua needed the sun to stand still, I still don't know how that happened. I don't know how it happened that the sun stood still. But it did. God changed the way, listen, he changed the way our solar system works so Joshua could win a military battle. That is amazing. God will go a long way for those people that are working in his plan he will go a long way for you and me. He'll move heaven and earth for us. Well, let's go on. So, Sisera's is warned. Hey, they're coming with forty thousand. Then he's whipped in the fight, and then this last part, starting at verse seventeen, Sisera is wiped out. Verse number seventeen. He's running now. Remember, he jumped out of his. He jumped out of his. Uh, uh, his chariot, and he fled away. Verse number 16. But Barak pursued after the chariots, after the host, unto Herosheth of the Gentiles, and all the host of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword. There was not a man left. Howbeit Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Remember him? He's the guy who gave the warning. He's like, hey, you better watch it. And he flees, Sisera flees to Heber's property, and Jael, the wife, is there. The Bible says, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said unto him, Turn in, my lord, turn in to me, fear not. And when he turned in unto her, into the tent, she covered him with a mantle, gave him a blanket. And he said unto her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk and gave him drink and covered him. Again, he said to her, Stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be when any man doth come and inquire of thee and say, Is there any man here that thou shalt say, No. Then Jael, Heber's wife, here it is, verse 21. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent, took a hammer in her hand, and went softly unto him, and smote the nail into his temples and fastened it, uh, fastened it into the ground. For he was fast asleep and weary. Man. I, that, that's an incredible little sentence in there. That, that's an amazing thing. He comes there. He's wore out. He's been running on his feet. Comes in. Hides in the tent. She puts a blanket over him. He asks for water. Note this. She gave him milk to drink when he asked for water. They didn't have General Electric refrigerators Their milk was served at room temperature at best. What is the effect if you drink warm milk when you're already tired? She's already working out in her mind what's going on. She covered him up with a blanket. She said she'd stand in the gate. She gave him warm milk to drink. There is a plan. He has no idea, obviously. He has no idea what's coming. All of these acts of kindness by her, hiding him, the blanket the milk all of them caused him to lower his guard and when he should have been watching and vigilant the bible says he was fast asleep he all he wanted to do was rest in peace and buddy he did didn't he verse number 20 i think jail determined if there's a battlefield nearby and this guy's running and he's hiding he's losing i don't want to be found harboring the enemy Right here, Jael chose sides. Let's not miss this. Right here, she chose sides. Now, her husband had already made peace with King Jabin. But historically, the Kenites were allies with the Jews. She makes a choice here, and she saw that the Canaanite grip on the land was being loosened and was going to be broken And she could help the cause. And so she goes in and she kills this man, pounding a tent stake. And the Bible's real clear on this. It says, through his temples. You have two temples. And there's only one way for her to get to both of them with one stake. She drove that thing right through his head and into the ground. The Bible's clear on this. Fastened it to the ground. And then the Holy Spirit, who I believe is the master of understatement, ends that verse by saying, so he died. That's like saying during creation, back in Genesis chapter 2, he made the stars also. Can we just pause right there? What? He just flung trillions of stars out there. He's made them. But we don't want to talk about that. Let's talk about the bigger picture. And here, tent stake through the head into the ground, so He died. And then it just moves on. That's an amazing gift of understatement there. You see, women often were responsible for putting up and taking down the tents. So she had driven the tent stake before. And this isn't like the little tent stake that you have for your Coleman tent, this is like the stake we have for that 600 person tent that we have those stakes that are two and a half or three and a half feet long and require a hammer to drive them in. Get this, for a captain of the army to flee from battle is embarrassing. To be killed while fleeing is humiliating. But to be killed by a woman while sleeping during battle was an absolute disgrace to Cicero's name and to his army. You go over Judges chapter 9 and verse 54, in a little while we'll get there, and we'll read how Abimelech did all he could to avoid being killed by a woman. He's fighting a battle up against a wall, and a woman takes a piece of a millstone. She sees him down there, and she chucks a piece of millstone down, and it cracks him on the skull. And it's a mortal wound. And he tells the soldier next to him, Kill me with your sword so it's not said of me I was killed by a woman. The way that J.L. killed him was an absolute disgrace to this guy. This is, a, this is an incredible story. Can I, can I close quickly with three lessons to learn from this? Here they are. Number one, God is always going to find someone through whom he can work. God will always find someone through whom he can work. There were no men available to lead, no godly men willing to step up and lead this. That's fine. I'll use Deborah. I just want to tell you, if God's looking for someone to work through, take the opportunity. Be that person through whom God can work. Don't step aside and let somebody else see that. Because not only do you miss your rewards, you miss out on the opportunity to see God do something incredible. God will always find someone through whom he can work. Second lesson is this. Reluctant service for Jesus costs something. It cost Barak. He didn't get the satisfaction of slaying his enemy. Jael got that. Reluctant service for Jesus costs something. Surrender your heart. Full-on surrender. God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? Where do you want me to serve? Full-on surrender. Third lesson is this. Christians cannot be neutral in matters of right and wrong. I said at the closing that J.L., Knew it was time to take a stand. Heber, her husband, had joined himself to King Jabin, but she recognized this was God at work. Here's a bunch of non experienced Jews whipping a huge army, a Canaanite army. God has to be doing this. Christians cannot be neutral in matters of right and wrong, you have to choose sides. So do I. You've got to choose sides. And the day in which you and I live, choose wisely. Choose wisely. The majority is not, uh, it's not that the majority is not always right. In this sinful world, the majority is seldom right according to the scripture. If you're judging what the majority does versus the Bible, it's usually not the same. Choose wisely. It's time to choose sides. We're getting close to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes back, I don't want him finding me flirting with the world. I want him finding me. I want him finding our church family doing the work he's left us here to do. Be more like J.L. Her husband Heber had no business making friends with the enemy of Israel. No business whatsoever. Love not the world. Remember that? Neither the things that are in the world. Follow Christ. Choose the right side. Father, thank you for putting such an interesting story in here. We're surprised, and uh, we're surprised at the violence in this book. But, Lord, when we, when we peer into it and we see what's being taught here, you left these stories in the Old Testament for our example. You left them here for our admonition. So all of these folks... Deborah and Barak and Jael and Heber and Sisera, they're all teaching us something. And, Lord, in the end, it's that we choose the right side here. And it's not about, Lord, it's not about this life. It's about the next life. So help us to choose to serve you and love you and follow you with all of our heart. Lord, help us not to hold back. May we not be half-hearted but help our lives to be about what your plan is and how we can be involved and see you do great things. Not just through us, but God, we want you to do great things in each of us in making us more like Christ. We pray all this in your name. Amen. God bless you, church. Good to see you tonight, Lord willing. See you on Sunday, all right?